preaching is going to be the focus as we uh, look at it tonight and then to go into a little bit uh, more of that introduction. And then, of course, next time we'll get into that matter of what the, the rest of the content is. Um, if you look in the book of Acts, just to show you the priority and uh, the importance of preaching right there off the outset, we'll see that in, um, let's, let's trace through some of these early chapters. In chapter 3, verse 20, for instance, let's look and see how uh, preaching is related to that. That it may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. And of course there we're talking about um, the uh, prophets and how things there that were spoken beforehand uh, were um, given and then uh, shows how it comes true in the New Testament, the fulfillment of it. Look in chapter 4, verse 2. Being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So there we have teaching, proclaiming. Teaching and preaching. By the way, we'll, we'll cover that a little bit. You can't really separate it. A preacher has to be a teacher. I've heard many times, and some of you have too, that, well, he's a good preacher, but he's not a very good teacher. Well, that can't be. You have to be both. A preacher has to be able to teach. That's that's part of it. Um, be able to explain. Gives the uh, the instructions. People are to, uh, to understand, to learn, be able to practice. Chapter 8, verse 5. Uh, pick it up in verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. So there we have Philip then as others were scattered out. This is where the Gospel now is being taken out from Jerusalem to, to Judea to Samaria. It's going out as it's supposed to. That's the outline of Acts, right? We've been pointing that out. And there's Philip who does go to Samaria and he began proclaiming Christ to them. Uh, Look in verse 25, same chapter. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So by the time you get to chapter 8, you've got Samaria and they're preaching it. And a couple of times we see there that they spoke the word of the Lord and they preached the gospel going through the villages. Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Uh, proclaiming, preaching. Verse 40, same chapter. This is easy, isn't it? Uh, but Philip found himself a Zotus and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Wow, that's amazing. It's almost like no matter where he passed through, he he proclaimed that gospel, preached it. Very early days. Chapter 9, verse 20. I think it's quite important, isn't it? And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. That's incredible. Right there in the Jewish synagogues going in preaching Christ and using the Old Testament prophecies about him talking about Jesus Christ incredible Um, verse 27 but Barnabas took hold of him brought him to the apostles described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Spoke out boldly. You go on and on. You can go on to chapter 13 where you start seeing Paul preach. Chapter 14, 17, 20, all the way through. Preaching Christ. Preaching the Gospel. Proclaiming. Proclaiming boldly. And that's what the apostles did. Whether it be Peter, whether it be James, John, Paul, uh, Barnabas. And that's what it's about. That's what the church is to do. That's number one. That is the priority. There are a lot of other things the church does. 
But it's all based upon that authority of the Word of God. It's where everything comes from. Look at Jesus. When we looked at the apostles. Let's, let's see His pattern that He set for them early in His ministry. Luke chapter 4. He goes into a synagogue. Of course, He's, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, right? In verse 16, in His hometown of Nazareth, many are familiar with this story, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. These are the scrolls. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to what? Preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed it, sat down. He really began to teach it. Expository. Explained it. Uh, Many people got upset, and that's where they... uh, want to throw him over the precipice and they want to kill him. (laughs) But he uh, boldly preached. I think his preaching was powerful. No doubt about it. It was urgent and yet it was very compassionate. Jesus preached with compassion everywhere he went. We know that gospel proclamation was there. And it also involved theological instruction as as he would uh, explain that. There was a theological view right out of the Word of God that it contains the proclamation of the doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching. Doctrine. Teachings. Um, so that's how our Lord preached. He, he told His apostles to go into all the world and to preach, proclaim, and to teach, to disciple. So there's really no difference the two go hand in hand. They work together. They're um, very interchangeable when we refer to Christ. So why is it such a priority? Why is it so important? Um, in Matthew, you'll see a lot of times where it says, Jesus Christ taught. And of course, we've been seeing that in Mark as we've been going through that on Sundays, right? Uh, if you look in Luke, a passage that would be comparative like you take the Gospels and you harmonize them, Luke will say that Jesus Christ preached. When you have another Gospel writer say, well, He taught. And so they're they're interchangeable as you do that. And of course, there is a difference, but yet if one is going to preach God's Word, they must be teaching it, announcing the purpose by Jesus Christ. That's what He did. Um, so, yeah. And that's a very good definition of it. That's what it means to proclaim it. Um, another thing, what had happened, and we're talking about preaching the Word, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of God who's the one who set this whole stage. He set this up. Um, people come together. They're confused, aren't they? Confused, perplexed, amazed, and it was time for somebody to come along and get the people unconfused. So, that's what Peter's going to do. As uh, the people have gathered around, they've asked questions, and he's going to eliminate the confusion of all people. Not too surprisingly that it would be Peter that would do this. And he even tied this whole thing into the people of God, the God of this people, as he's addressing it, the, the true God of the Old Testament, Jewish people, that's who he's really addressing. And these Jewish people, um, we know, uh, were also dealing with other people that had come from other nations from all over to go to this feast. So these languages are there. The wonderful works, the words of God, and uh, it's quite, quite a miracle. A supernatural scene is happening. And, of course, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, which is what we dealt with uh, last week. All of that. That's, that was a great setup for where it was really headed, which is right here, preaching the Word. What's the results? Well, in Acts 
2, where we know, verse 41. Acts 2.41. Oh, it, yeah, and I'm going to come right back there. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I could. Believe me, I do that. <laughs> and, what this, and this will take us back to, yeah, to actually the 14. But at the end of the deal, and believe me, people have to watch me. Yeah, you never know what verses I might say. <laughs> so then those who had received his word were what? Baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Who knows how many there were there, but I can say that area around that temple, that may be where it is, and that's where a lot of people are gathering, could hold as many as a 120,000. Jam it on out, maybe 150,000. Could be tens of thousands, but there's a huge crowd, and this is Pentecost. People would be gathering around there. There's no reason to think that it's a small crowd. So you, we know that 3,000 got saved. How many didn't at that time? Many. <laughs> but I'm sure maybe later a lot of them did too, as they pondered upon what what had just happened. I mean, this is a this is a a thirst, you know, in this sense. Even though Jesus has been talking about it. And, of course, there had been some preaching and teaching, but, I mean, in this way. Uh, and and the, that's why the Lord promised so much. Holy Spirit's going to come. I'm going to leave, and He's going to come. He's going to give you what you need to speak. And boy, did it ever. He doesn't have anybody bringing scrolls up as He's preaching the sermon. This is Scripture memory. He knew the Scripture. And being inspired by the Holy Spirit... This is a special occasion. Okay, now let's go back <laughs> to that that uh, fourteen there. <laughs> By the way, I'm getting this um, this word from where it said uh, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them. He's declaring, he's proclaiming, preaching, being defined. The the word for preach is caruso. Probably familiar with that, right? And um, there was a t-shirt company called Caruso. And they were one of the biggest Christian t-shirt companies. And I don't know how they are anymore, but uh, they used to be. And it meant to herald or proclaim. Proclaim is a good... uh, uh, word for that, I believe, uh, many translations. It means to announce or proclaim, right? The, the word comes from kerygma. And kerygma is dealing with content. So you have the proclaiming and content, preaching content, not just something that's fluffy or air. So um, that whenever you hear somebody get up and teach or preach the Word of God, they're they're proclaiming a body, a body of proclamation, a body of truth. They're proclaiming, they're preaching that. The, the content there is kerygma. Um, now, if you look in the New Testament, this caruso or kerygma, I guess you could say this kerygma, this content. First of all, what's the most important thing that you can preach? What's well, Christ, right? You ever heard of Christ-centered preaching? Well, that's what the apostles preached. And it was always about Christ. You start with Him, His death, burial, His resurrection. Of course, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. Death, burial, resurrection. This is the Gospel. And that's the at the heart of number one. And, of course, they will come along and then say that Jesus fulfilled that Old Testament prophecy. And they will use what they were so familiar with, and they say, this is, this is the one. Jesus did it when we read the Luke 4. He was the one that proclaimed uh, the message about Himself. He read an Isaiah passage. You can't go too far in the Bible, in the Old Testament, before you run into a messianic prophecy. I think that's incredible. The Old Testament is about the Messiah. So, anyway, that's one thing. It's always tied Preaching Christ is tied to Old Testament prophecy. It's nothing new. It's fulfilling it. Secondly, 
is that it was preaching Jesus is God in human flesh. The deity of Christ. He wasn't just a man. He was 100% man, but he was 100% God also. As uh, traditional biblical Christianity teaches. Thirdly, it centered on his life and his death. Of course, his burial, his resurrection, it centered on who Christ was, particularly that death and resurrection. This, this Jesus, whom you crucified, as he will say in this message, as, there's his death, but then to talk about that resurrection. Um, fourthly, it always talks about his second coming, that he'll be back. When Peter is preaching that, I'm sure he's thinking he could be back next week. A couple of weeks. Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> right? But they didn't know. And you know, there was a reason for that. Of course, Jesus told them that I uh, can't tell you that day. It's just like we today think that he could come back you know, at any time. That's, that's a good thing. Matter of fact, it, I think it would keep us wanting to um, preach salvation to the lost, right? And, of course, the gospel um, comes along and its whole idea, there she is, how we do. <laughs> Salvation was alone in Christ. Christ alone, right? Christ alone. And um, if, if one rejects that, then they're lost forever and there will be a judgment and there is hell. So, those five elements is what you will see all the way through the book of Acts, and then you will see it also in the epistles all the way through Revelation. That's, that's always at the heart. So that was the kerygma. That's, what they pre- that's the content of the caruso. Okay? I think you could uh, put it down K-E-R-U-G-M-A if you want to put it down in English letters, or you could put a Y there. Yeah, yeah go ahead. K-E-R-Y. Yeah. Right. They they used to sell um, like uh, Sunday school uh, courses and things. That, that's the name of a company. So that's how I was. Oh, really? Kerygma? Mm-hmm. Ah, that's cool. Well, Content. It's yes. Right. It has that sound. So the U's and the Y's. Even in ye old English, you look at a sixteen eleven King James, and you'll see yeah. that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, proclaiming or preaching, and what was the other word that we said that goes together with it? Teaching. Teaching is didache. D I D A C H E. And that was the word that we kind of uh, ran through and, and showed that uh, preaching and teaching are so closely together. Um, this is where. Teaching refers to actual reasoning. So it has to come to mind, it's not some kind of Eastern religion where you really try to empty yourself and, you know, where, where you get to find your God within. You know, it's, you don't want to get any kind of teaching. You want to be empty and let whatever it is, spiritual, come in and fill you up. And you don't really explain it. It's just some kind of experience. And of course, that even happens in the Christian realm. But teaching is something that uh, people think and reason about. It's logical. Christianity is not some kind of, um, what is it, uh, a blind faith or some kind of mystery or uh, mythical. It, it has it. So, Didache. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, early in the church history, they had uh, a writing called the Didache. And that was the the teachings that they put together. It was helpful. You might see that sometimes in your reading of of books. Um, So in the book of Acts is all we see. And what happens uh, in the book of Acts where people respond is sometimes you'll see this. They were persuaded. Now that doesn't always mean that they are converted. Usually it is. Uh, I think what there was one king, which one was it? Uh, who was persuaded, he almost persuaded, right? He was thinking about it. It was starting to make sense, but oh no, no, I don't want that. Yeah. 
But that's what you see when, when people are converted. They're persuaded of the truth of the Word of God. It isn't, you know, faith comes, it's this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of, of Christ. Word about Christ or the Word of God that you're familiar with. But actually that word there in the Greek is uh, you know, Christos. The Word about Christ. Logical process, isn't it? It's a body of truth. Doctrine is involved in the proclaiming. Uh, have you ever heard a cheap presentation of the Gospel? And they, they never do start at the beginning and they never end at the end. And even when there's an appeal made, it's based really on nothing. <laughs> I mean, how can people respond to something that's just fluff? Uh, it might have a lot of jokes and might get the people laughing and might entertain the people. might be a lot of nice little stories. But if we haven't gotten to the heart of the Word of God, what is it about? It's really nothing. And, of course, you look and, and you see what the message and the content that we have to present, um, it just goes on and on. And the depth that's there, right? So anyway, I, I said turn to verse 14, right? Did I get that right this time? Okay. <laughs> verse 14. Now here's where Peter starts the declaration. That's the intro of my intro to the intro. Is that making sense? Peter had an introduction. You know, my introductions, they get a little lengthy. But I, I actually was on the first point there. So we might be on verse 14 because of him de- declaring. What does Peter do? Taking his stand with the eleven. This is the group of the apostles now, right? Raised his voice. I like that. Peter stands up. The moment. This is fantastic. This is it, folks. It's one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached. The people are confused. And a matter of fact, we saw literally what one of the words means. Was it uh, astonished? Uh, which meant to be uh, messed up. <laughs> They're all messed up. And what is going on? Wouldn't you? This loud sound came through there like a, what, an earthquake? A tornado? Whatever it was. And then they're hearing this, these languages from these guys that are hayseeds from Galilee. And everything is ready. And it's set up. They give the question. Peter's standpoint, as far as he's concerned, it is now the time. And guess what? Even better, he's filled with the Spirit of God. Remember that? That's what happened to him. They're all filled, those 120. Filled with the Spirit. So, he's about to open his mouth. God is going to speak through him. And then he says, it says like this, he lifted up his voice or raised his voice. I want to tell you, preachers love that verse. Oh man, they, they actually do. Because this gives New Testament precedent for yelling. <laughs> he raised his voice. I don't do that too often. I'm not one of those screamers. There's some that can really scream good, but that that it, there comes a time when it it must be there must be some kind of maybe some authority that's pushed through. Sometimes you have to wake people up, you know, or or whatever. But you want to make your point clear. Um, I have heard those yellers, and after a while, your ears go like, oh man! I heard one guy one time that was so loud, my ears were ringing. And, you know, being a musician that I was, playing guitar, it would take a lot for my ears to ring. And um, it was in a place that was built like a tunnel anyway. I'll never forget. I don't know if you ever remember that, but it was down in uh, Shimoy. And there was a... Uh, actually, he, he was good. He, he really preached, preached a great message. I'm glad he did what he did. But I'd never heard anybody that loud. That must have been something like what George Whitfield did. Whitfield preached in front of 10,000, 20,000, 40,000. It's been reported as much as fifty to 60,000 people. And you could hear his voice a mile and a half away. I mean, that is unbelievable. And those just are not hearsay pans. stories. Huh? I thought it was poor pants. Oh. <laughs> the, yeah. Imagine raising him up. Yes. I often think about that when Jesus was preaching to such huge crowds. He must have amplified his voice too for everybody to hear. Sure did. 
And he, I think he picked perfect spots, uh, too, along with that. I'm sure that God gave him a great big yeah. voice. At, uh, For instance, like when you think of the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. the Mount of Beatitudes, it's like an amphitheater there. Have you ever seen pictures of that place? And it's built just for that. Of course, amphitheaters will take, and you can don't even have to use microphones there. The, the acoustics are just natural, you know, outside. So, um, you know, I'm sure with, with that, but of course, it, I'm sure he's saying, okay, guys, we've got to move over this way uh, because the acoustics are better. I don't think that's happening. You know, wherever the crowds were at, he went. But um, that's right. There were thousands, literally thousands and thousands that Jesus spoke. And so, anyway, I'm sure he raised his voice. Peter's, like I'm saying, he could be preaching to 100,000 people here. If that be the case, you better get that voice up. And so, that may not mean anything. I never really noticed it before. I've read this passage so many times, but that raised his voice. I just kept on going and moving on through. And he go, raised his voice. Yeah, there's a reason why. And so, he, you know, he doesn't have a Bible in book form. He's not carrying his scrolls. Um, he had recited this stuff from memory. Um, to be an effective witness for Christ, there are certain passages of Scripture that we really need to know or at least have them be able to put in maybe our way that we can remember. Uh, it's very helpful to memorize certain Scriptures. Explaining the Gospel, right? Of course, I think everybody knows Romans 3.23, right? Or the Romans Road, Romans 6.23. All of those, those are always good to have. Uh, sometimes we may not have a Bible handy to, to pick up. I've seen guys they'll have they'll have a Bible in their back pocket. If they happen to be wearing a coat, it'll be there. They'll they'll have their big Bible out in the car if they just happen to be close. So they always have one, you know. Good to, good to have. What's that? Now it's on the iPhone. Yeah, yeah. You don't even have to. Have that. It's all oh, right there now. <laughs> there it is. Ninety percent of the people in the Bible study that I'm in don't have a Bible. What are they? Are they using the phones? They're on the phone. <laughs> That's the time that we now live in. Ninety percent. That is amazing. Well, how many here? They're, like on a Sunday morning, how, would you say there's at least half are using those now? Frida was probably doing it for anybody here. Yeah, You're using a real Bible tonight? <laughs> uh, that, that is interesting, though. Uh, so, Anyway, what did he do? He declared. Of course, we spent a lot of time on that, but um, he declares to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, all the people from everywhere. They're they're all from everywhere. The the nations are already mentioned here. Um, Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Notice it twice. In this message, Peter is going to appeal to the audience, listen to me. Be listening carefully to me. Pay attention. Right here in this verse, give heed. And then over in verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Check this out. Examine it. I've got the message of your life. You really want to pay attention. Did you know that the audience also has the responsibility? Not only does a preacher have the responsibility to deliver this message, to preach a proclaimment, uh, a preacher can be dynamic or dull. And no matter how dynamic or dull he is, the audience still has the responsibility to listen carefully. Listen carefully. Even the Lord Jesus... Of all people, you wouldn't think that he would have to have his people to pay attention. You'd think they'd all be paying attention, right? He's the most gifted speaker ever in history, and I can guarantee you he was never scared of the crowd. <laughs> he exhorted his audiences to take care how they listen. Look in uh, Luke 8.18. Always kind of demanding that people would pay attention. So take care how you listen. Take care how you listen. For whoever has to him, more shall be given. 
and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. Wow, that's important. He's saying what you uh, what you have, God has given you, and He can give you more. He says, take care how you listen. Or He can do the opposite there. So, in other words, I think responsibility um, for a sermon not only is with the preacher, but, but with the hearers also. Um, so, give ears to what you hear, right? So often we hear Jesus has that. So Peter's saying, I've got something to say to you. You better hear it, he's saying. Don't you like that? That's called boldness for somebody to say, you better pay attention. Listen to this. You know, this is the guy who a few weeks ago turned out to be a coward. And we covered it on Sunday morning. Because there was a little servant girl that asked him a couple of times if he... Matter of fact, she didn't really ask. He said, you are. You're the one who is with Jesus. You're part of that crowd that was with him. You're one of those guys. What did Peter say? No, no, no. Matter of fact, he even cursed and swore. A little girl asking him that, and he was a coward. And all of a sudden, he has all this courage. What a drastic difference that we have in Peter. And the reason is, is that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And when one's filled with the Holy Spirit, they can speak things and do things in the name of Christ that couldn't ever before. And I think every one of us here can attest to that. Just our own uh, living our Christian lives out when we know that He's He is uh, the one leading us on. Now, you've heard of one, you know, a message that has to have a grabber to get people's attention. Sometimes it's good to have something right there at the front to have people listen to that and now they're they're riveted. They're they're ready to go. They're they're set up for this. And that's what's happening here. All these people are congregated in one spot. If he doesn't deliver here real quick, they're all going to scatter and leave, aren't they? That's not going to happen. He gives a living illustration. There's been a living illustration. Right in the midst of that, Peter is stepping up and he takes off of that illustration and he bounces right off what had happened, begins the introduction, and now we move to verse 15. Okay, Sorry guys, we've done one verse. For these men, I like this, are not drunk, as you suppose. For it is only the third hour of the day. Well, what is he going off of that for? Because back in 13, others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. They're drunk. Full of sweet wine. They're full of it. They're being full of something that will change your your thought patterns, your actions and such. So they were accusing the believers who spoke in those languages of being drunk. Now, Peter could have ignored it, or he could have responded very defensively and got real mad at them. But actually, he takes that and jumps off with it to get where this needs to go. So he uses that. So he's saying, in effect, it's too early for anybody to be drunk. And you say, well, why do you say that? I know people that have been drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. I've seen them. I'm, you know, right? You guys have seen that and say, well, what's, what's, what's the difference here? you got the same kind of drunks today. It can be 8 o'clock in the morning and the first thing they do instead of going to the coffee, they go right to the bottle, start hitting it. Drunk before 9 o'clock. Well, what does that prove? Well, if you learn the Jewish culture, and this is who he's speaking to, No Jew would ever drink or eat prior to the third hour of the day, which is like 9 o'clock. That's what what time it is there. That was the time for morning devotions. They didn't eat or drink until after 9 o'clock, especially if it's on the Sabbath, if it's on a feast day, uh, a festival day such as this. What is this called? Pentecost or the Feast of... Harvest. 
So no Jew would be drinking by this time. That's just part of the culture. That's kind of one of those things, even if one is an alcoholic, I'm sure they had them. There's no doubt about that. But they didn't even do that. And what Peter is saying, guys, you know better than that. Nobody. No Jew gets drunk at this time. It's so widespread, so universal. Peter only has to appeal just to this custom. He settles the argument right there. They're not drunk. You know better than that. It's only 9 o'clock. They don't even begin to eat or drink until after that time. It's impossible. Then he starts hitting with the truth. And he gets to the Old Testament. He starts quoting a great place to go because that's where they all would be familiar to go to. They would be familiar with Old Testament passages. So he says, your own prophet and our own prophet. Job, he prophesied this. They're asking what's going on. See, Zach. Oh, okay. Hey, sounds like a deal. Joel, we know, and we'll turn back there, has in mind uh, this uh, a particular time, a kingdom, a, a coming of the Messiah to reign, that whole context there. If we were to uh, turn back to Joel, I think it's exciting this, for him to be able to take from a text and to be able to answer them this quickly. And of course, you got uh, you got a messianic book here, and of course, he's talking about there's going to be devastation and judgment by God. There's going to be starvation and drought. There's going to be locusts and that kind of thing. And uh, in in Joel two, he gets into like even verse one. Here's the context: Blow a trumpet in Zion. Let it be known. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And he talks about it in verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it. Nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consuming. Of course, you know this is the context of of uh, where Peter is going to quote from. If we jump all the way now to, let's say, um, verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for His land and will have pity on His people. The Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied and full with them, and I'll never again make you a reproach among the nations. And then he talks about the... uh, uh, removing the northern army. Of course, they'd gotten attacked by, um, we know, the Assyrians, for instance, and, uh, of course, the Babylonians from the south and Judah. That's the, that's the context of all that setting. If we look in verse 28, now this is where Peter draws from as he takes out of that text. It will come about after this that I'll pour out my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So that's kind of the setting that uh, Peter's drawing from. They knew full well what that was dealing with. Um, they're, they're familiar with it. It would be a time of um, the kingdom. It'd be a, a time that was going to be set up. It's the day of the Lord. But when you say the day of the Lord, we've been reading there that there was going to be a judgment uh, upon them. But we see all the blessings too. For us Christians, when we know when Christ comes back, we rejoice over that. But we also are sad for the fact that people don't know the Lord are going to be judged. I mean, either we're going to heaven or we're going to hell, right? And so, you know, there's there's kind of a bittersweet thing, but I, I look forward to the time that Christ comes back. But to all those who are not Christians, of course, they don't look forward to it. They don't even believe. If they don't believe in the first coming, they don't believe in the second coming, right? Or don't believe in Christ. Um, so the day of the Lord, it depends on who you are and how you take that, but... Um, so often in the Old Testament, 
you hear day of the Lord constantly. Of course, Joel, this prophecy is is um, is is tremendous. It's it's about the Messiah coming. It's talking about this judgment being involved when he came first. Um, we know that most of the people didn't receive him. Um, but, Ah. Sorry. Okay. Somebody wants to hear about this great message. Maybe I ought to just keep it open. What um what he gets at here right off the bat, okay, this is spoken through the prophet Joel. And of course, we read this, and it shall be in the last days. God says that I'll pull forth of my spirit among mankind. Basically, it's word for word that what we read in Joel there. Um, they were looking to the messianic times. And that's, that's correct. Um, when it says last days, to us, we know that when the Messiah came, that kicked off the last days. We are in the last days now. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Um, when, the, when the prophets of the Old Testament speak of the last days, it was always reference to the, the coming of the time of Messiah. Of course, we know that he, He's come. We know He's coming again. They weren't looking for two comings. They were looking for that, that one time. And it stumped up the apostles. They still didn't get it even after it resurrected. They were still wondering what what is this, you know, when when is it? And um but they didn't see this time that we are in now, this time after Christ till the tri- time that he will come back. They they don't, they don't see that. And matter of fact, Paul preached on it in Ephesians 3 when he when he talked about the mystery. Um it's in the Old Testament, but it's not seen it's not seen very clearly. We have the New Testament, which really, what does it do? It really is able to magnify on that, and it brings that that truth out. So the Messiah would come. He would set that kingdom up. One great big thing. Well, they're, they're right. The Messiah, the kingdom, they're, of course, they, they didn't really get what was going to, to happen. Um, Isaiah 9. And, and here's the reason why. A child is born, and then what's next after that? The government shall be what? Upon his shoulders. Okay, when he comes, that's interesting. I don't know if they really got the child is born, but they def- definitely see, okay, he's going to be the leader of the government. You know, they, they were looking for a political ruler, really, at that time when, when Christ did come. They don't see anything here in the middle. And so whenever Paul says it was a, a, a mystery, it's something now that's been revealed. It's now understood. The, uh, the Old Testament that's concealed is now in the New Testament what? Revealed. And so we're living in even in that time now. It's not a mystery to us. I would say that we are probably a mystery to the unbelieving world. We have a veil over us. We are the bride and uh, they don't see us because of that. We, they don't see us being married to Christ as He is you know, our head. Uh, or we will be married, right? We're the bride of Christ in that sense. Uh, they didn't see this 2,000-year parenthesis or however much longer. I prefer to think it's not going to be much longer. That'd be great. Whatever God's got in mind is fine. God graciously called Gentiles now into His body. Um, and of course, um, God and, uh, had chastised Israel. He punished Israel for the unbelief. And but you see, this is a Jewish context as we read in there. But we have something that we can understand better as we look back. So the last days were messianic times. The Messiah had already come. He's been here. That kicked off, or I like to use the word inaugurated. He inaugurated the last days. Now, there is such a thing as the last days of the last days. The last days began with the arrival of Christ. Uh, just to show that, and then we'll go back and say, but there is the last day of the last days. But let's look in First Peter 1.20 just to prove that the last days started with the, the Messiah being here at His first time. 
um, Peter speaking about the Messiah, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now, Peter is writing that, and that's in the first century. We are in the last days compared to... I think you and everybody else is missing this. Well, give, give me some time. i got to work through it, Eldon. He was in the last days of the Old Testament era. The Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost was at the last days of the Old Testament era. But the last days continues through right on through the Not church the age. Days they're talking about. Well, Look, you got a reference to Hebrews. Look at Hebrews one and two. That's but that's what I'm that's what I'm working at. Yeah. Um, he's talking about the the. He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Now, when did he speak in his son? In the last days of the Old Testament. He spoke in those last three years of uh, 30 years close to the end of the Old Testament. That's the last days they're talking about. And I don't think we can preach a message taking these last days and saying, well, it's sometime in the future to us or we're living in the last days. And that's not what he's saying. Well, let's go to 1 John 2.18. And this is John writing about... Um, all the deception, false teachers, antichrist and such. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have appeared from this, we know that it is the last hour. Now John wrote 1 John probably somewhere in the vicinity of 90 AD. Probably somewhere in that area. And he's calling it there. This is, of course, he's not saying day. There he's saying this last could, hour. Could be that, but it's a different time. It's not the days that Christ spoke of as the last days. He spoke at the end of the Old Testament era, and that's the last days he's talking about. There are there are different uh, contexts, and of course, um, well, let's go to let's go to Hebrews nine twenty six. speaking about Christ here and His sacrifice. Otherwise, He would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Um, at the consummation of the Old Testament age, He's made manifest. Well, it's, you look at all okay. of the Old Testament at the commentaries, and they say what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Until you get back before 1800. I have excerpts from commentaries from 1800 all the way back to 1200, and they all say that this is the end of the Old Testament age. Let's go to 1 Peter 4 7. This is Peter writing, first, of course, first century there. The end of all things is near. And, of course, he was looking at a time when Christ would come back. Here he again... He was looking at the Old Testament temple, the priest sacrifices, and he said that the end of all that's come, coming to pass. It's just almost now. It's coming to pass. This is the end of the Old Testament era. Well, I think what he's saying that we're well into the New Testament at this time. We're well. The temple was still standing. Yeah. The Old Testament sacrifices were still being made, and but, he says at the end of all things, the all things to them was the Old Testament system. Of course, he's of course he was he, still there. Of course, he's not even talking about the temple there. What he's talking, but, no, but he's talking about is, the end of all things, and that included the temple and well, the priest sacrifices. The, the end of all things, the second coming hasn't even happened. There is a second coming which is where the church has so often spoken, these New Testament passages, when Christ does come back in that total fulfillment that the Old Testament people were looking to. There is an end 
to the end. Um, So uh, a last days to the the Old Testament people, still yet we are in, uh, even though it's a new time period, a new covenant, there still is, if you compare it to all the, the, let's say the 4,000 years before Christ, Okay, that's that's the end of that new covenant period, but yet at the same time there is there is an ending time period before Christ comes back. Right? I don't think that's what they're talking about at all. Uh, I've yeah. Um, Look at your... Whenever he says the end of all things is at hand, it's coming. I the the, the context there is is talking about keep fervent, keep preaching the gospel, keep living it, serve in God's glory. And um, because he didn't know when Christ would come back. Even Peter didn't. They looked, if you look at Paul, you look at all the, uh, the apostles and their writing, they didn't know when Christ would come back. They thought he could come back in their lifetime. But here it is 2,000 years later. The end is still at hand. It's before us. It could be. And so they're looking at that. The Testament had come. Look at your scripture in Matthew 24. He was looking at the at the temple. The stones were still standing there, and he said, "Not one left upon will be left standing." And they asked, "What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The end of the Old Testament age? That will clear up all of the confusion about Matthew chapter 24." Well, you, uh, I'll uh, I'll be glad to discuss that. I don't think we have. Much time we're after that, but Matthew 24. Honestly, though, what you see there, if you read all the way through, and of course there are many things said there that Joel said, uh, and immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. I can give you a half a dozen references in the Old Testament when that exact same thing happened. Uh, Jesus oh, Christ has come back. He came back. Not, not. I, I, I not wholeheartedly disagree not with that. physical man. But we're, we're talking about they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of, of the sky. Old Testament language of the, the... He came when the temple was destroyed. They said the Son of Man came in judgment. They, in in uh, where you are there in, uh, in Acts... Chapter 2. In in verse 24, David said, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence. Now, was Jesus standing before David all the time? No. That's a figure of speech. I was always beholding the Lord before me. But Eldon, you have something in Matthew. You have to go by context. And I I know what what, what you mean there. But in Matthew, you're talking about the very uh, Jesus Christ who comes back to the earth. And of course, in other texts, we see that He comes back to the Mount of Olives. We're talking about the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Great power and glory. People actually, they will see Him. And Acts one it David says said, I, was, I saw him, but he didn't actually see the physical presence of the Lord. He saw his manifest. That's what they when. when but you have a sign here, and they see the sign up in the sky. We can take this in in a literal way. When Christ comes back, he is going to be. As a matter of fact, Revelation one talks about his coming, and also in Zechariah chapter thirteen. But what we're talking about is a literal coming back of Christ. And in Joel, he's giving us a glimpse. He's setting up what the kingdom is going to be like. It's inaugurated. And now we are set up in this time period. Like you said, uh, time's running out, but I, I don't agree. That's not what those verses are saying. Well, I, I say they are based upon other scripture. 
a uh, distorted interpretation of mm. what the word is said. And, and That's quite a charge, Eldon, because okay. if, if we look at... charge almost everybody yeah. in this day and age of doing that. Well, if you, look, if you look at these texts, then what you're saying is that we're not in the last no, days. No, we are, but we're not in the last days that they were talking about. Well, yeah, they were in the last days before Christ come. I would agree with you on that. They were in the that last was the last of that time period. There is now a new covenant. Which he promised. The last days of the Old Testament era. But then you have other apostles using that same thing, saying they are in the last days after the time period that Christ had already been here, after he had resurrected. And they looked to a time that when Christ would come back. Just as the Old Testament people looked for. Are we not in the last days? Maybe. Yeah. Sometimes. Okay. So I can say, okay, they were in the last days of that covenant, but now there is the last days that the apostles used so much. But make the distinction between the two. Don't say that what they said is the last days of the Old Testament is the same last days that we're in. They're not. Well, I think if uh, you'd give me time, I probably would have said something like that. But <laughs> I, I had other verses to carry. You kind of jumped on me before I got to go there. You know, in all honesty. I've studying this for two years. And I think what I have seen is that we are taking many, many, many times words where it says we're in the last days. Not in the last days of our time, but we're in the last days of their time. The Old Testament prophecy. And we can't prove something that God says by using the Scripture wrongly out of context. Well, here's here's the sum, and, and we'll have to come back next week and get it because we are over time here. But uh, I think the, the basis of this is saying this is the time. This is the thing that's, all, that's been spoken about. This is what... What everybody has been looking for. This is it. If you want to know why people are speaking in the languages, well, this is something a little bit about what Joel was talking about. That this was the time that was looking to, of course, when Christ came the first time, he didn't come to judge. The second time he will, there is judgment in Joel too. So, the last days in one sense, and I was going to show some passages where we are in the last day, or we could be in the last day of the last days, and watch out for those, and I, I don't have the time on that, but um, the the idea is that, do you see what Peter is really trying to stress? Regardless of, you know, me and Eldon wrangling back and forth, we're, we're doing that out of love, right? We're not We're not mad at each other. You know, we might have different views, but what is the principal point that he would be stating? This is it. This is why this is happening. Now, this wasn't the total fulfillment of the kingdom, as Joel speaks about in in his whole context, but it is getting something kicked off and getting started. Something, Something miraculous has just happened. In fact, it's happened since what happened to Christ. There were some crazy things that, that were happening whenever Christ uh, was on the, the, the cross and then the, the, uh, the resurrection. And you'll remember there were people walking around the city that were in the tombs <laughs> that, that were actually walking around. And then there was the great earthquake and the, the darkness, pitch dark at that time of, uh, of day. Was it uh, 3 o'clock? Uh, there for a little time period. So uh, amazing things. But now we have this glorious truth that comes out, and of course, this sets it up then to get to the content of the sermon as he draws from this and says, this is part of it. It wasn't an absolute fulfillment, because some of those things, the sun being darkened, he could go back to Christ, and that some do that, and moon and the blood, but the great and glorious day of the Lord, or as Joel said, the terrible day of the Lord. And of course, that's dealing with, with, with his judgment. So anyway... Um, a great a great sermon. That was just just an introduction. We didn't uh, really get all finished with that, but the content is what uh, we'll be heading into. And um, he's he proves what what is happening and why it's happening and who this is all about in uh, in that message.
Thank you, guys. Let's have a word with the Lord. Thank you, Father, for this evening. Thank you for your truth. and We just uh, desire to know who you are and how you um, have done things, uh, how you've shaken the earth with the power of your word of God as people uh, were, were trembling and repenting over their sin. We know that that's where it really has to be taken to and to know that your gospel changes people's lives. And uh, that is so much at the focus is uh, what this gospel is. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.